Our text is in 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the experience of Paul and Silas and Timothy and all of these Thessalonians. We thank you, Lord, that you have encoded their experience here and that we can still learn from it and that your church will continue to learn from it until the end of time. We ask you now to bless uh, this to everyone's hearing and have your Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Back in July, uh, the last time I preached a sermon, it was from Second Thessalonians. And so I'm going in reverse chronological order, I guess. So that time we uh, taught about shunning. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, it's specifically advocated, and then I gave you many other examples from Scripture where it is. At that time, I addressed, in general, the Thessalonian church, what Paul was writing to them about, what the issues were that were unique to that church. He specifically, and the one... Uh, the, those that were being shunned were being shunned for the most part because they were lazy. They were refusing to work. They were sponging off of other people. That then allowed them time to become busybodies. Instead of minding their own business, they were out wreaking havoc in other people's lives and probably also the lives of the elders of the church. Uh, they were, and also generally, he preached against sexual immorality and also against rebellion against the authorities. Now, at that time, I chose not to back into 1 Thessalonians 2 
although there were issues there that I was aware of, I just thought it can be for another time. It really wasn't pertinent to the message that day. And uh, I am kind of thankful that I waited because I didn't have this in mind at the time, but it really has allowed a perfect opportunity. Now, what I just read to you, um, I think, was present here all along. And now, to re remind you of where we are in time, they have uh, left Thessalonica, and it's probably only a few months has passed since the founding of that church. And I'll get into a little more detail about that later. But I want to cover two issues that you see here in 1 Thessalonians 2, but it might not be obvious, but it becomes obvious when you see just the abundance of words that Paul uses. So the first of the potential issues is this. I'll begin with 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And so in verse 5, he does greet them, and he commends them for their faith, and he calls them beloved brethren, referencing their election by God. So he's writing to believing people in Thessalonica. That's who he is writing to. He wants them to read these words. But I want to focus on a few other things here in the second chapter. He calls them brethren, but if you look down to verse 10, it was in our reading, he says, your witnesses and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Among you who believe. So he's referencing their belief specifically. And then if you go down to verse 13, he says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. To me, it appears that he's qualifying to some extent, to some minor extent, the audience to whom he's writing. He doubts that all of those that he's writing to in Thessalonica, all that have been included in this report that has come back to him from Timothy, because he dispatched Timothy to Thessalonica because he'd had to flee, and I'll get to that in a minute. I'll read the portion from Acts where this happens. But so he's very concerned Timothy's come back and brought a report commending faith. They have great faith. They've even begun planting churches. Thessalonica is a city of 200,000 people. It's a big city. And so they've begun reaching out to other local communities. But yet there are problems, and some of the problems are in the church. And these people are behaving in such a way that I, I think Paul doubts the sincerity of their faith. And three times... In verses 2, 8, and 9, and let me read them. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now down to verse 8. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you'd become dear to us. And then in the next verse, it continues on. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Gospel of God is used three times in this little bit that I'd read. He's reminding them over and over and over again that he taught them the gospel of God. And I believe he fears that they have allowed that knowledge to vanish, many of them anyway. Gospel of God is only used seven times in the whole Bible. And so these are the only ones in which it's being used as a reminder to people, in a sense, a mild rebuke to people that, hey, you're forgetting what this was all about. 
It was all about the good news, the gospel that we brought to you. Now, that's only the first point. The first issue is that I believe he's dealing with implicit unbelief amongst some of these people he's trying to write to. The second, and I think this is stronger, look at this. Now, it might have popped out at you when you read it, but maybe not. Let me read six verses of what I'd read. It's half the verses I already read to you. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. And then to verse 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you. He says, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know. He says it six times. Six times in 12 verses. He's bringing to their minds, you know this. So what he's implicitly rebuking them for is they're willfully ignoring it or forgetting it. Because the report he's getting back from Timothy obviously tells him a different story. That... The brief time they spent there, a lot of the effort from that, a lot of the benefit from that has kind of dissipated. And now they're going astray. They don't know who you are. They don't care who you are. They don't care what you said when you were with them. They're just doing their own thing. I believe both of those are at work here, and we see evidence of this. Twice he calls witnesses to bear. God, them. So now he's strongly urging them to remember his time with them because it seems that it's coming undone. Now, this isn't surprising because he wasn't with them very long. So I want to take you to Acts 17, where he went to Thessalonica. I'm going to read to you, starting at verse 1, and just kind of pay attention to the time frame here. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, now this is uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as was his custom, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar. Now, we're talking a city of 200,000 people. I mean, this is a big to-do. Now, it doesn't mean that all 200,000 are out there, but still, it's a big event. The whole city is in an uproar, it says, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they were obviously hiding out somewhere, not in Jason's home, at least not where they found them. When they arrived in Berea, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness 
and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. So they were only in Thessalonica for maybe a month. And they left as the result of a riot that was caused by the unbelieving Jews that were envious of them, of their influence. Then they were in Berea, and they're miles away. But when the Thessalonians learn this, they go after them. They go and they, they chase them out of Berea as well. Again, they raise a ruckus amongst the people. The Bereans were stated to be fair-minded, but then it says, too, that the Bereans were being influenced by these unbelieving Jews. So now, we know that they were only there a while, and you can see at points, uh, Timothy stayed there longer. Paul and Silas were there and then left. Uh, Timothy may have stayed longer, but the mob forms, they surround the home, Pilate, Paul and Silas are sent to Berea, and then we have that portion end. So see, there are at least the three of them, and we know that at points Timothy is separated from them. Now I want to go back to our text. Now that's just for background on what's going on. Their brief time. So this is a few months later. Paul's writing this letter. He's received this report back from Timothy because he had been concerned, had to leave there in a hurry. No time to, no time to, you know, kind of close out the relationships, make sure they're on a firm footing, all of that. So now we're back to 2.10, 1 Thessalonians 2.10, and I want to emphasize a couple of pieces here. Let me read verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. So what he's calling to their attention is the character, the very noble character of evangelists, of the apostles and his entourage that was there in Thessalonica with them. And so you are probably familiar with the phrase that often a teacher, they're trying to teach, and yet a lot of things are caught, not taught. So we learn a lot from our teachers. Sometimes we learn bad things from our teachers. I remember in the movie Starman. Anybody remember the movie Starman from like 1980 with uh, Jeff Bridges? And, and he's this alien from outer space, and he's come to Earth, and, and uh, the woman who he's kind of kidnapped but now has come to understand him and accept him, he's driving her Mustang, her hot Mustang, and she's asleep. And she wakes up just in time to see him run a red light and almost get hit, hit by a semi-truck. And she said, you told me, you watched me, and you knew how to drive. I do. Green, go. Red, stop. Yellow, go very, very fast. So, see, she had taught him more than she knew when he was watching her drive. Just like we parents often are teaching our kids a lot more than we know, a lot more than we want. But yet, Paul is aware of what they taught the Thessalonians. I don't want to say he's proud of what he taught the Thessalonians in character, but yet he's certainly not ashamed. He said that we were devout and just and blameless. They behaved that way, him and his entourage. See, he stressed his own character as being evidence of the fact that he wants only their good. He was not there for ill-gotten gain. And he, he insists that they're witnesses as well as God. And now on the next verse... 
as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So now see, first we had the character of an evangelist. That's what he drew their attention to. Now he's drawing their attention to the work of the evangelist, what he had done while he was there. And what did he say? He said, exhorted, comforted, charged. So see, the, the exhort and the charge are kind of similar to one another. Exhort is a form of encouragement, this strong thing, but charged is you ought to do this, you ought not do that. This is what you are to do. And he gave them a mandate, an encouragement. He's comforting them. Now, they're already facing persecution, and he alludes to that elsewhere in the, in the books. And like I said, it's only been a few months, but these Jews are attacking all over the Roman world. They're pretty much given license by the Romans to do that, and they recognize this Christian cult everywhere, so they attack it everywhere. But yet the work of these evangelists goes on, and he reminds them that he treated them as a father would, his own children. And earlier, if you recall, in our text, in verse 7, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishing her own children. He, he gives the metaphor of both mother and father that they were to them in those few weeks that they were with them. But apparently, enough time has passed, and they've come under such persecution that there is the potential for them to be forgetting, conveniently forgetting about this. But he's taking the time to remind them He's not too proud to be holding their feet to the fire, to say, wait a minute, you're rewriting history here. You must be fair. We were fair with you. You ought now to be fair with us. Now, the message today, though, is not uh, just about this text. Uh, I was telling Gary before we got started that it's really a, more of a launching off point. And so I wanted, though, to give you the background of what Paul and, and Silas and Timothy were facing with these Thessalonians and why he's written this letter. But when he gets to verse 12, he says, after he's talking about, as a father does his own children in comforting, charging, exhorting them, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. A few weeks ago, maybe, over, maybe uh, over the last six weeks, I'd been listening to the New Testament and actually these epistles um, from maybe Galatians on, and that phrase popped out at me because I saw it several times talking about walk worthy, walk worthy of your calling, walk worthy of God. And so it just struck me as something that we really ought to focus on, we ought to meditate on. We ought to understand what Paul means when he says that we are to be worthy. So that's why we need to cover this. Uh, first, what were the Thessalonians supposed to do to fulfill this command? You have to think that. He's commanding them to walk worthy. What does it mean then to walk worthy? They needed to know that. We need to know that. What are we supposed to do to fulfill that command today? And of course, we'll get our answers from Scripture, not from our own imagination. First, I want to talk about the word worthy. The word worthy occurs in the New King James Bible exactly 50 times, four times in the Old Testament, 46 times in the New. Now, this, of course, is an English word, and so Hebrew and Greek aren't exactly going to have the English word worthy, and so the versions differ. NIV, for instance, has, I think, 46 occurrences, so four less, but eight of them are in the Old Testament which means that there are far less in the New Testament. And so I'm not trying to be comprehensive in this. This is not a word study. But 
the same concepts could be interpreted in various other phrases or words. But I just wanted to take these 50. So I ran through these 50. What do these all refer to? What's being referred to? The phrase, worthy of God, the one that is on our text, occurs only twice, here and in 3 John. But variants of it, with almost identical meaning, exist. Uh, Jesus said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Same thing. Jesus spoke of people not being worthy of him. Not worthy of me, he said. Those that would turn back. Worthy to attain that age. Again, these are all Jesus referred to in the Gospels. He refers to those that are worthy to attain that age. This is in Luke when he's warning of the, the destruction that's to come. And then he refers to uh, those same people, uh, pray that you be worthy to escape what is coming. And we've been hearing about that from Pastor Kaiser's pre, uh, sermons on Revelation. Now, also elsewhere in the epistles, we read, counted worthy to suffer, worthy of the saints. And so now here it's not just a worthiness in terms of God, how we're related to God, worthy of our walk, worthy of our call. It's worthy of the saints. So we are conscience-bound. God binds us to treat other saints well. You are our brothers and sisters, right? I am your brother. So God expects us to behave in his family. There is being worthy of our calling, worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord. All of these are very, very similar to one another. They have the same concept in mind. Now, there are uh, actually surprisingly few instances where we talk of God himself being worthy, for instance, of praise, of worship. Uh, and I'll get to the one earlier that, uh, that uh, Gary quoted from in Revelation 5. So the dictionary definition of worthy, I just want to run through a few of those. Deserving, attention or respect, having or showing qualities or abilities that merit recognition in a specified way. And that's important in the specified way. We'll get to that hopefully too. Uh, worthy, good enough, suitable. So all of these are synonyms, and synonyms for all of these are righteous, good, moral, upright, deserving, merit, entitled to. Now I'm going to refer to another movie. Starman just kind of popped up out of nowhere. This is one that I had planned. About, I don't know, 15 years ago, I guess, Saving Private Ryan came out, and I was looking forward to it. My wife and I went to the theater, and wow, if, you've, if you want to see a war movie that gives you a realistic beach landing at Normandy, you've got to see Saving Private Ryan because the first 30 minutes of that movie is intense. You are on the landing craft. You are landing there at the beach. You are having the German machine guns firing on you. You're hearing it. The concussion, you're, you're deafened. The, the, the video is uh, sporadic because your vision is, is, you're seeing bodies blown in half. I, it's, it's very realistic. Now, of course, I did not uh, uh, participate in the D-Day landing. But boy, after watching Save It Private Ryan, I'm sure glad I didn't have to. It gives you a whole new respect for what those men went through in attacking those beaches. But one of the things I wanted to share, though, is the whole premise behind the movie. Um, who of you has, have never seen Saving Private Ryan? Might not even know what the premise is. Ah, good, good. See, normally I'd like you to have seen it. This time I'm kind of glad you haven't. So see, the name, of course, means something. Saving Private Ryan. Well, who here has heard of the Sullivan Brothers? 
Trevor has, Navy guy. The Sullivan brothers were five brothers that all served on the same ship, the Juno, which was lost at sea in November 1942, and all five brothers were killed. After that, it was seen as just bad politics for us to risk that again as a nation, uh, because who wants to tell the mom and dad that you've killed, as a nation, all of their sons? So there was then instituted, actually after the war, another thing came about called the sole survivor policy that all the branches of the military have implemented in one form or another. But this movie is based on the premise that just after D-Day landing, it's been discovered that there is this private Ryan, James Ryan, who had two older brothers that are now dead. They've been killed in other fighting. So now they want to get this one that is already well into France and by well into, you know, 15, 20 miles, which at that time was plenty. And so they need to get him. So there's this one captain who's played by Tom Hanks and then his, his small squad of like six men that are tasked with this. They all hate this duty. What makes this guy so special? You want me to risk my life for this guy? One guy? It doesn't make any sense. So several of them feel put upon by this. But the captain, of course, he's faithful to Uncle Sam and the military, and he's like, we're going to go get him. So the rest of the movie shows these guys getting, first finding him, because in a war zone, it's really tough to find this one guy, especially with a name like James Ryan. If it was Rodney Swab, they'd have found him no problem. I think I'm the only one in the country. But so James Ryan, though, apparently isn't as, isn't as uncommon as my name. So it takes them a while to find him. But then the rest of the movie... They're trying to get him to safety, get him back, and they get engaged in various firefights. And one by one by one, this squad of seven that are here protecting this guy, trying to get him to safety, die. And at each point, each of the men kind of makes a volitional act in order to protect this guy's life, even though they don't want to necessarily. But that's our duty. That's what we're tasked with doing, and so they participate in this. So the very end of the movie, though, now it started with... James Ryan returning to France and being at a graveyard uh, in, like, let's say, 2000, you know, 50 years after the invasion of Normandy, 1995 or whatever. So now, you now see, you cut to the captain dying on this bridge. He's the last one. And Private Ryan is standing there right in front of him. And the captain starts speaking. Now, the captain's been all shot up. And so he says something to Private Ryan that he can't quite hear. He gets down there next to him, and he tells him, earn it. And he repeats it, earn it. And so Ryan knew what he meant. He meant earn the fact that you've had seven people die, especially for you, to get you to safety. So then the next scene, they fade back, and he's standing there in front of this grave site. And it's this Captain Miller's grave who had died back in 1944. And he turns to his wife, and he says to her, tell me, tell me I'm a good man. And she said, what? He said, am I a good man? She said, yes. So this was his way of assessing his worth, his value. Am I worthy? Was I worth saving by these six men who exchanged their life for mine? So in a, in a very real sense, this occurs in war. You know, various people sacrifice themselves for the good of their, of their fellow uh, soldiers. Now, typically, you know them. Here, these six men are tasked with saving a stranger that they don't know from anybody. 
But often, and now, you know, Paul alludes to this, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. That's in Romans 5, 7, where he's talking about Christ, the righteous one, sacrificing his life, and it having such meaning, such significance. Because normally, our sacrifices are limited in what they can do. Yes, they can protect someone else's life. But Christ's death, of course, his sacrifice, saved so many lives by comparison. So see, there is this whole concept, though, of living a worthy life. So this saving Private Ryan, Private Ryan, did he live a worthy life that was, that was uh, one that he could stand at this guy's grave and admit was worthy? Now, use of the word worthy in the Bible, though, has sometimes concerned me. It's partly why I chose to preach on it. When I read through it and I read through certain texts, like, for instance, in Luke 21, where Christ is referring to this, he says, Wash, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. How would they be worthy? And then he says that you will escape all these things that will come to pass and to, to stand before the Son of Man. Obviously, one day in heaven, to stand before the Son of Man. So it sounds a little bit like earning your righteousness, earning your spurs to stand before God in heaven one day. But note what he says, though. With, with, you know, you really got to pay attention to the words. You can't allow your mind to jump to a, a conviction. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy. He's not saying that you're earning it. He's saying, pray that you be considered worthy by God. So that's not about earning salvation. It's about wanting to be safe in the arms of God. And so we want, God wants everyone to pray that. He says, I want every man to be saved. So see, we want people praying for salvation. We want people praying to stand before God one day, stand before the Son of Man. And then we have in our text, in, uh, or the text in 2 Thessalonians 1.11, that our God would count you worthy of his calling, that our God would count you worthy of his calling. How can we be worthy of God's calling? Oftentimes, my mind tricks me. I want to understand a word in only one way. And that's a fallacy. So when you read the word worthy in the Bible, you might think, oh, this is the same as here, 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 and here. But that's not true. There are all these contexts. When I told you about the meaning of the definition, I'd said having or showing qualities or abilities that merit recognition in a specified way. And see, worthy always has this component to it. Worthy of what? So I want to take you to Psalm 14, and I'll read verses 1 through 3. Now, I think everybody knows this little portion here. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none 
who does good. No, not one. So this does not use the word worthy in it, but it's speaking of no man, no human on earth being worthy, seeking, truly seeking God from the bottom of his heart. They have all gone their own wicked ways. And this is quoted in Romans 3, where Paul is presenting Christ as the antithesis of this that all the rest of us fallen humans are. And then I want to go to where uh, Gary referenced earlier, Revelation 5, and I'll start reading at verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Now, where, where was it that we were looking for someone of worth to be able to read and open this scroll? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth. Now, you have to ask, isn't God in heaven? Why, in this case right here in 5.3, couldn't he open the scroll? So what is the specificity here that is required? Well, you have to read on. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So see, only the God-man was in the position to open this scroll, to read this scroll. Jesus was uniquely qualified by God to be this person that does this. No one else could do it. None of us, not Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, but him as man who has prevailed over the temptations that sent us to hell. Now he can open that scroll because now God's will will be done. So see, in this instance, the worthy is very, very precise. It alludes to something that none of us can attain to. And so, worthy is a word like any other word, and it's used in a variety of ways. You have to note the subject, the object, the, the context, the action, or the scope of the words. You have to notice the time tenses, past, present, or future. And so, worthy in Revelation 5 is used in this very, very precise way, this very noble way, talking of absolute righteousness and having conquered uh, sin and temptation. And yet, other uses aren't like that. The many uses that I've quoted earlier that make our calling election sure, worthy of our calling, worthy of the gospel, worthy of the saints, worthy of God, worthy of our Lord. We have popularized a phrase in our church, and I've used it a few times, but it's not about perfection, it's about direction. That's more the worthiness we're talking about. We're not talking about the fact that God has qualified us, made us pure. We know that. He's, he's enabled us to enter heaven because he's washed away our sins, made us perfect through the blood of the Lamb. Yet there is this kind of more earthly, more sanctification-oriented way of looking at worthiness as well. Are we sticking on the path? 
Are we doing due diligence in serving God the way he wants us to serve him? So again, how do we measure this worthiness? Do we consider ourselves worthy? We're not all of the same worthiness because we're saved. Yes, we're all saved. We're all going to go to heaven. Those that believe, just as he qualified it to the Thessalonians, those of you who believe, those of you who believe. But in terms of ways in which we should measure ourselves and measure the value we're bringing to God's kingdom, we all vary. We're all over the map. I did not know until about five or six years ago when I began managing a team at work just how different people are and how you need to motivate different people differently and how incentive-based people's actions are. Um, there are some people I work with on my team that are just, I, I mean, they're, they're borderline workaholics. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. They love the work. They're always wanting to do more. But there are others who can barely, barely get done what it is that you ask of them, and then they're really trying to wear you down in giving you a, a shoddy product. And it's very easy to then say, oh, well, you forget about it. I'll give it to this other guy that works like the Dickens. And you really have to resist that challenge. You know, as parents, we know this. Give it here, I'll do it. You know, I mean, how many of our children have gotten out of chores because the parents just lost the interest, they lost the battle of the wills and just being patient in consistently accepting inferior product, inferior work product until such a time as you finally got them trained to do it better, do it well, do it on their own initiative, do it in the timeline that you want. It's really hard to be that consistent. And so I ask you, are you a worthy servant of the Lord? Do you do your best for the Lord? We are all lazy at some point. I've told you before, I, I am lazy. And I struggle with that. It, it drives me crazy. And yet, it still hasn't fundamentally altered my character to where I'm, oh, now I'm not lazy now. No, no. I think I'm always going to be lazy. I'm always going to prefer to do nothing as opposed to do whatever it is you want me to do. Maybe someone else will come along and help you out. Someone better at it than me. So see, we can justify this in so many ways, but the reality is that we are made for lives of service. And let me give you some specific examples that we're given in Scripture. I think it's helpful for us. So how do we measure our worthiness? What is it that God is using to measure this? In Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul is closing out his letter. He says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So see here, he's specifically drawing the attention of the Romans to the fact that someone is coming to them, Phoebe by name, who may need your help. And he's saying, help her. Please help her. If it's within your realm of abilities, please help her. And so we're measured in terms of our sense of, okay, are we responding to requests from within the church? So now that's kind of treatment of or service towards our fellow believers. Uh, Pastor Kaiser has often referred to giving a cup of cold water 
to those. I, I'm so looking forward to uh, Peter Hammond coming. I love his visits. I want to hear about what's going on in Africa. I've never been to Africa. I doubt I'll ever go. I want to hear from someone who's there, active in ministering to the churches all across that continent. Just such a cool opportunity we have. And so even our attendance upon his talks, that's a form of this service, another aspect of this worthiness. Now, we can't do everything, and I'm not trying to guilt you into doing everything. Um, That's not going to work. But yet, I want you to recognize, though, that all of our worth is out there for God to see. It's out there for one another to see. It's obvious. To the degree to which we are a good or a poor servant, God knows. He knows who he's going to get to do the work and who he's kind of trying to draw along. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness. And so here's humility and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So now we've got patiently dealing with other people who may not be where you want them to be in terms of just even polite character. Uh, God sometimes gives us challenges in that regard. Long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity, peace. In other words, they're God's servant too. Let's serve them. And we all know people that do this better than others. I'm not going to name names. It's just I, and I don't want to publicly commend people because then, oh, there goes a piece of your treasure perhaps because your pride flares up and God's, you know, oh, take that away. I, I want the treasure that's prepared for me in heaven. I don't want people trumpeting my uh, my works here on earth. So now, in uh, Philippians 1.27, and least of all me should be trumpeting my works. So Philippians 1, starting at verse 27 to 30, uh, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, what goes around comes around that thing, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so here, obviously, we're talking about being true to God and standing up in our societies for God, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. So courageous. We have to be courageous, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Again, Paul had just come to the, uh, oh, this is the Philippians. This is where he did get beaten uh, and jailed. Unity, tenaciousness, courageousness, uh, and uh, patience in suffering. And then uh, on to Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Prayer is always something that is adding to that worthiness. We are lifting up God's church, our fellow man, to him to seek their good. Do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So even study, increasing in the knowledge of God is good, and yet also communion with God is as well, because that's going to make us so much more productive. Now, too, none of this can exist apart from God's grace at work in your life. We know that God's Spirit enables us to do all of the works that could possibly be of value on this earth. 
to building up of his kingdom or to honoring God in heaven. So we don't do this in our flesh. We do this through our, uh, through our Lord. Good works, studying, patience again, long-suffering again. And there are two here that I want to draw special attention to. And they reflect our heart attitude, being joyful and being thankful. These are ways in which we are then worthy of the gospel which we've received. Are we joyful? Are we thankful? Only Jesus is worthy to save. Only God is worthy to be worshipped. But we are to continually evaluate our worthiness. We're told over and over again to be, be worthy. And we are asked to do that, commanded to do that by Paul as an act of our will, an act of our volition. We're engaged in this. You know, the fact that we understand the Reformed faith and the sovereignty of God does not relieve us of the responsibility to exercise our will in serving him faithfully. So from day to day, we are not even measuring ourselves equally worthy. We fail. We fail to do what we know we ought to do. I tell you, this past week, I am kicking myself still. Monday morning, I was walking from my car to my work, and there was a young man. Now, my route right now, I'm walking near the bus station. I'm walking past the police and the fire station. It's a very different walk than it used to be, and I'm really glad I'm walking this way now. You, get, you meet some interesting characters. So I'm walking past the police station, and there's a young man walking along with two bags. He's got one in his hand, and he's rolling one. And I'm like, this is odd. He's probably going to the bus station. He's probably going to catch a bus. It's early, 6.30 in the morning, 6 in the morning. So I'll never see that guy again, right? Two days later, again, Wednesday morning, I'm walking the same route maybe about 20 minutes later, and I see him standing in front of a pawn shop, and he has both bags that I'd seen him with Monday morning in front of him. And I'm thinking, this is so odd. And I could just see in his face this fear. And I still kick myself for not having stock to him. Young man, what are you doing? You know, just, just butt into his life. Go ahead, Rod. Butt into his life. That's not me. I'm not like that. And yet, after I, even, even three blocks down the road, God's spirit is still telling me, Rod... You ought to go find out that guy's story. See if you can help him in some way. But I didn't. So I thought, okay, God, third time. If I see that guy, I promise you I'm going to stop this time. But, of course, I haven't seen him again. He's now probably on a bus after he apparently hawked some of his stuff waiting for the pawn shop to open three hours after I passed him. But when you want to serve, when you want to grow in this worthiness, you're not earning your salvation. It's not about that at all. You're just trying to reflect the gospel. You're trying to participate in this. And so when we want to do this type of stuff, when it's a hunger in us, we'll find the opportunities. God will just open them up to us. And then we ought to have the courage to do what it is God's Spirit is prodding us to do, as opposed to just not wanting to get involved just not wanting to deal with this. It's inconvenient. And I have so often used that excuse for not getting involved when I believe God was calling me to get involved. Now, James Ryan, that Saving Private Ryan guy, 
owed a debt to men that he could never repay. They were dead. They were gone. And he was guilt-ridden by that. He had survivor's guilt. That's what you see come across in the film very clearly. We owe our lives to a God who saved us, who is alive and will forever be alive, who wants us to serve him faithfully on this earth. And we have ample opportunity because we can serve any other human being. And he accounts it as serving him personally. Just remarkable. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that's at work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Uh, we want to be worthy of the calling, worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord, worthy of our God. And that just doesn't come. We must be willing to get out there. We must be willing to be inconvenienced by what the world will throw at us, by what our brothers and sisters in the church even will throw at us. But Lord, we pray, please uh, make us obedient and uh, faithful children. Uh, have us to reflect your character, uh, the father, the mother that we have here, Paul representing. We want to be that whoever, to, to all that we come into contact with. Uh, may we minister in other people's lives with the, uh, the nurturing and the loving aspect of a mother and the uh, far-sighted wisdom and uh, sometimes hard-hitting truth of a father. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would make it so. We cast ourselves uh, into your care and pray that you would use us for the building up of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.